This is your Security Insider podcast is proudly brought to you by SimPro. The only tool missing from your belt, SimPro. Total business software for the trades. When you choose SimPro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. SimPro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust SimPro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Cameron Smith, Director of the Security Enforcement and Licensing Directorate at New South Wales. Uh, Cameron, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Now, Cameron, you are speaking, you are speaking to us specifically today about some changes that you've got coming through to the New South Wales security industry legislation that will commence on the 1st of June, 2023. And you've already announced that we're going to be seeing a merging of the current unarmed guard and crowd control license subclasses, and that there's going to be the creation of a new cash in transit guard subclass. Can you talk us through those and then maybe a little bit explain uh, some of the other things that are coming through? Absolutely. Yeah, that's certainly the change that will affect the most number of people. So I guess to explain first the reason for that. um, So this was something we proposed back when the training package last changed. So when Artibus Innovation went through the, uh, well, they formed um, an industry reference group, I think it was called, which um, was chaired by ASIO. And that group provided the industry consultation into the training package review and uh, that process started with the industry um, reps being asked to identify the discrete role types within the industry that then the training um, needs could be determined. Um, so my view is that having been through that, we should we should align our license classes with those discrete role types. And uh, some of those changes had, uh, I guess, reflected some of the things that have been happening in New South Wales for a while in that, um, we had had the same training requirements for many years for unarmed guards and crowd controllers because um, we hadn't been able to see a, you know, a clear delineation between those two roles as uh, very often overlap. And the industry consultation on the training package confirming that the a broader security officer um, role encompassing both activities um, was more appropriate. And we thought, well, great, that, that's a perfect license class for us to adopt. Um, Cash in transit was something that I'd seen as a, as a gap for us in New South Wales. We didn't have that class of license. And what that meant was that we were providing no training. Uh, well, there were no training requirements for anyone doing unarmed cash in transit. And we were also providing mandatory cash in transit training to all armed guard entrants, whether or not they were going to be doing CIT work or not. So creating that new license class means that uh, Everyone will get uh, training unarmed or armed CIT and uh, and we can strip that CIT training out of the armed guard course. Um, so how are we going to implement that? Well, we learnt our lessons from the 2007 changes to security licence classes in New South Wales where there was a people had to nominate and pay for the privilege of having their licence classes uh, changed on their licence. So, we are for all everyone who currently holds a 1C crowd controller license. Um, if they already have an unarmed guard 
uh, the the one C will ultimately disappear off their license card, but we won't be replacing the license card at this stage. We'll make immediate changes to the public register. We don't want to charge people for the privilege of a license class change that they didn't ask for. Uh, but nor can we absorb the cost of replacing all those license cards ourselves, which would be well over a million dollars in fees we would pay to um, the card producers for us. So we will change the public register. The license cards will continue to show the old authority, but um, we're going to manage that transition process by changing the, the design of the license card. So we'll put communications out that someone who has the old style, the current license class, uh, sorry, license card design, if it has a 1C on it, that means they're covered by the new security officer yep. um, uh, and not cash in transit. If the person has the new style license card and has 1C on it, then that means cash in transit. Um, eventually all the cards will be replaced as people naturally renew or you know, lose their license and apply for a replacement. But we thought that that was the fair way to manage the change. I recently put um, uh, something out through my LinkedIn and slid on its Facebook, actually put into um, the industry to vote for um, whether we simply do a colour change to the licence or whether we adopt a more significant change, which is going from a landscape design to a portrait. Right. Uh, looks like portrait has won the vote at about uh, 62%, so we'll make that change. Um, so that'll be more easily distinguished between the old cards. Um, now, back to how this is going to work. So, yeah, um, a person who already has a 1A, the 1C will just disappear off. The 1A will cover everything. Right. They have a 1C only, crowd control only at the moment without 1A, then they'll be given 1A um, and the 1C will drop off. Uh, for those individuals who don't have cash in transit, well, obviously, at the moment, we've got a whole lot of armed guards out there who have had have received cash and transit training. We'll be giving them the new 1C cash and transit guard automatically. They won't have to pay for that. Um, for unarmed CIT workers in the industry, that's the biggest change. So they've, they've received no training in CIT. What we're going to do is provide for a six-month transition period. So from the 1st of June until the 1st of December, they can continue to carry on unarmed cash and transit work, even though they don't at that stage hold the cash and transit license class. Uh, they'll have six months to complete the training that is required. Uh, once they provide us with the training, again, there's no fee from our aspect. Obviously, the training organisations will charge for that training, but they don't um, pay a fee to us. Once we get the training evidence from them, we'll add the cash and transit guard to the license class. If they haven't completed the training by 1st of June, uh, sorry, 1st of December 2023, they will have to cease carrying on unarmed cash and transit training until they then pick up the training and that license class. How are the cash and transit companies responding to this? Because one would assume with the, the struggles that people are having finding people in the industry at the moment, that this is ultimately going to end up falling onto the CIT companies to go out and pay to get all their unarmed guys and girls trained up. Yeah. Look, uh, I'd say generally there's an understanding of the reason for the change. Um, so the support from that aspect, the most legitimate um, uh, argument we have or the, or the issue being raised, which I'm very sympathetic to, is the regional areas who have less aspect of training. 
Um, so, and, and through the Sled Advisory Council, in fact, one of our representatives on the council who's based down near the Victorian border raised this very concern as to how they are going to get their people trained in time. Um, that's an issue that SLED in itself can't solve. I mean, obviously, training organisations need to see a business opportunity to provide training in those areas. So I really encourage um, businesses in local, in, in regional areas to get together and approach for training organisations and say, we can provide you with a cohort of students, um, so many students, um, to provide the business uh, imperative for the RTO to go out there. The other alternative is that... Um, even though this new course won't be available until 1st of June, the fact is the armed course already contains those CIT units. While we don't encourage it because, you know, I don't think, I don't want people paid for training they don't actually need, but if someone is concerned about their ability to get it done within that 1st of June, the 1st of December timeframe, they can start completing the armed guard course now, which will qualify for that CIT um, guard course. But, um, yeah, that is, that's my biggest concern as to whether the regional areas um, uh, can get the training. Um, but RTO is a commercial business. They'll, they'll go to where they're, you know, if they've got guaranteed students, I'm sure they'll travel to those. But um, yeah. there's going to have to be some uh, dialogue commencing now between those regional employers and our approved organisations. What's the number of contact hours in that training package? Is it a weekend thing? Is it a week-long thing? So we're still in the process. We're working with the RTOs to develop the discrete cash and transit guard course. Um, to an extent, it's uh, those units are already there in the armed course, but we need to strip them out and make sure they're contextualised so they're not just relating to armed. Um, it will be, I would, at this stage, I'd say it'll be more than a weekend, but less than a week. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I can't provide a definite idea. We're, we're going through consultation with our training organisations to just make sure that course is fit for purpose. Right. So any RTO that was operating in a regional area could reasonably expect that, you know, if there are a number of companies within distance, they could roll most of their people through within a week or so. Yeah, yeah I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, that depends on how many, and there's you know, limits to how many students you can run in a course. Uh, because of course, these are not just you know, it's not just training; it's assessment. Um, there are role plays and scenarios. The more people you've got involved in those, the longer it takes. Yep. Um, too few means it's not economic for the RTO to travel and run a course for those. Um, too great means they're going to have to run several courses or have a longer course. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's why it's difficult to say how long because it depends on two things, how many people and what level of capability they're bringing into that process. You know, someone who uh, hopefully has been doing CIT work for some time and has a strong degree of capability coming into it potentially be able to get through those assessments straight away. Others are going to need some preliminary training, uh, perhaps several attempts at the assessment before they demonstrate confidence. So, yeah. Okay. It's a very difficult, uh, difficult thing to put a figure on. Yep. Do you have any sort of guesstimate as to when you're expecting that course curriculum to be finalised? Uh, probably no earlier than the beginning of May. Um, uh, but... Um, we're hopeful earlier, but I'd, I'd say probably no earlier than first of May. 
that's going to be pretty tight though, isn't it? That leaves people with like a month to get the course done if they're not going through and doing the full armed guard cash in transit course. Oh no, they've got six months. So there's a six month transition. So oh, okay. the new new subclass comes into effect on 1st of June. They yep. haven't called the 1st of December to complete the training. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. All right. Yep. That makes more sense. Okay, so we've got the merging of the uh, the crowd control and the unarmed guard into the one class. We've got the emergence of a new cash in transit class. What are some of the other changes that are coming through? Yep. So coupled with those, it's important for you to mention that the um, definition of crowd control is being changed in the legislation. So. Uh, one of the problems we've had is that the crowd controller definition was quite limiting in the number of, well, the types of premises of which it applied. Um, so even outside of the merging of the security license classes, that's an issue we wanted to deal with. So we are um, including in the, in, the, in the places at which the crowd controller definition applies will be um, hospitals, Quarantine facilities, um, although hopefully that's a, that's a thing of the past, but they may again be required into the future. Um, uh, retail premises and public places. So just to mention a couple of those, in terms of public places, we were starting to see um, uh, crowd controller activities moving beyond licensed premises to people actually you know, being required to manage uh, taxi ranks, for example, um, and uh, ensured disorderly behaviour wasn't occurring um, in the spill-out. At closing time from licensed premises to the taxi ranks, that's a public place. So those people actually weren't captured by the security legislation previously. Retail premises, perfect example. I've, I've long argued that it was, um, it was ridiculous that uh, someone working in, for example, Westfield Shopping Town, Parramatta, massive was not considered to be a crowd controller, but say um, someone working in a small country pub was. So um, right, that's uh, so we've expanded uh, the places captured by the definition, and again merged that with general unarmed guarding. So there's more flexibility in deployment. Um, yeah, I had someone reach out to me uh, just today expressing how much easier it will be there for them not to have to worry about whether someone's got the one A or someone's got the one C. They can they can apply them to a broader um, number of duties. Sure. So that expansion of uh, the definition of crowd control within the legislation, what will that mean in real world terms for security providers, staff and end users? It would mean a fair bit where we're not merging the classes. Uh, the merger of the class means that really it's just a matter of making sure that the people there aren't people out there performing what we, the regulator and the community would expect should be a licensed um, security operative. The, the, they're not operating outside the legislation. So the big issue is that public places, for example, previously they weren't, they weren't protecting property. Mm. They weren't captured by the crowd control definition. So they weren't required to be licensed. Um, right. Now they will be required to be licensed security officers. And so we can make sure they have the, the the necessary training and probity background to um, to perform that role. Give us an example of what you mean by protecting public property that fell through the cracks there. What sorts of roles would that have been? Yeah, so that, that taxi rank situation, for example, right. uh, other instances. So uh, 
you know, places like the Sydney Harbour for sure, you know, popular tourist destinations, but they're public places and it's not an event on at the time. Any security there, you, know, you couldn't argue that they're protecting property unless, you know, the occasion, you might get the occasion malicious damage or so forth, mm. but they're really they're monitoring the behaviour of people they're um yeah, and controlling that behavior uh, asking people to leave those sort of issues so it uh they were captured previously and they will now okay and so in terms of for the venue operators the location operators and and the people providing the stuff and the people working there there's going to be a couple of instances like that where they're now going to have to either go out and get trained or be replaced with licensed personnel potentially to be honest, my guess is that a lot of these places that we're now capturing within the crowd control definition, people always assume that they were captured. Yeah. Um, so my guess is that it's licensed security doing it in any event. Um, this just means that we can enforce those requirements. So I, I honestly see fairly minimal impact, but yeah, there's certainly the potential that there are some areas where unlicensed people are doing this work. I think it was probably broadly accepted, albeit a misconception, that you need to be licensed to do that work. Okay. All right. And are there any other major changes coming down that we need to be aware of? <laughs> there's quite a there's quite a lot of changes. So this is a, a real continuous improvement process for us with the legislation. Um, those license class changes are certainly the one that impacts the industry the most. Uh, probably the next biggest in terms of an impact for employers in the industry is um, is new prohibitions against employing unlicensed persons in certain capacities. So the legislation at the moment, prior to the change, had um, it was a condition for master licensees that they not employ someone in the cash and transit sector of the industry or any sector where the role gave that person access to operational information about the business um, if that person would be refused a license because of criminal history grounds. Right. Um, there was also a prohibition on individuals working in the industry um, if they were involved in rostering or scheduling guards if they had a disqualifying criminal history. So what we've done is... We fixed that issue up. We've we've broadened it so now the rostering and scheduling prohibition also applies to the master licensees. Right. The cash in transit and the access to operational information also now applies to the individuals. Um, but we have also added in there that a person can't work in those capacities if they have previously been refused a license on fit and proper or public interest grounds or had a license revoked for those reasons. Um, so what does that mean for master licensees? They, they are going to have to do, they've already had to for many, many years now, essentially do a criminal background check on, on individuals they seek to employ in those capacities. Um, added to that, they're going to have to make inquiries with the individual as to whether they have previously had a security license refused or revoked. We have created a protection um, within the legislation, a defence, if you like, for master licensees, is if they make thorough inquiries and do not know that the person fits the criteria and could not reasonably be expected to know, then they have a defence. 
Um, so, for example, master licensees should definitely, in writing as part of their employment contract, be asking these questions of the individuals they seek to employ in these capacities. If the individual lies in that process and say, no, I've never had a license refused, the master licensee has a defence. They've made all reasonable inquiries yeah. um, and uh, could not be expected to know that. Um, however, the individual then will be subject to um, uh, extra enforcement, if you like, from SLED, uh, yeah. because not only have they committed the offence um, of working in those restricted capacities, but they have gained that employment through dishonesty. Um, so then would they have to put that to them in writing? So they've got a record of it in writing? Absolutely, yeah. In order to yeah. to, uh, to satisfy us that they have the defence available to them, yeah. um, they need to prove to us that they have made those inquiries. Um, okay. Now, in terms of revocations, so, okay, if we refuse a licence application, there's no record on our public register. However, if someone did hold a licence and that licence has been revoked, that record of a cancellation is on our public register. So that's another thing master licensees should be doing is a public register search to see whether there is a record attached to these individuals. And if there's a cancelled licence there, they should be doubling down on those inquiries with the individual and explain to me why that licence was cancelled. Um, yeah. So yeah, they've got to make those inquiries because, of course, the risk is, I mean, the whole part of regulating the security industry is to ensure um, that people entrusted to provide security under threats of security, you know, inside a threat issue. And um, someone who has a background in, say, let's say, for example, robbery, working in the cash and transit industry, albeit not in a licensed capacity, could facilitate um, a robbery. So, yep. so it's part of you know, just protecting against those insider threats. Um, uh, some of the other changes we're making are we're tightening up the visa requirements for license eligibility. So, okay. as you may be aware, New South Wales is currently the only jurisdiction that resists, restricts the visa types that um, are eligible for a security license. We don't allow, for example, student visas, working holiday visas. So, a bit of historical context previously, you had to be a citizen or a permanent resident only to get a license. Yep. Um, we found out a number of years ago that was contrary to Australia's international trade obligations. So in negotiations with the Commonwealth, we expanded that to allow other visas that um, empower the person to work here, but we took out student visas and working from home visas um, because people applying for those visas essentially self-declare their lack of criminal history. There's no background checks done by Home Affairs granting those licences. Um, yep. However, having put that in, negotiated that position, we found over the years there's just an increasing number of visas that have the same risk as student visas and working holiday visas, but um, you know, weren't captured by our exclusions. As an example of that, you can't get a licence here in New South Wales if you're a student visa holder, visa holder, but the spouse of a student visa holder, it's a different visa category, they can right. get a license. Um, okay. Same risk supply. So, what we have done is rather than exclude student visa holder and working holiday visas and allow all other visa types, we are changing it to be very specific about the types of visas that are um, able to um, fit in. And, and essentially, the only visas that we will allow now are those relating to where the 
as an employer-sponsored um, visa or a specific occupational type that the visa has been granted for, and it will be tied to those. So, for example, someone who's been sponsored to come over here to work as a chef can't be allowed as a security guard. They have to actually be sponsored to come over here to work in the security industry, and then they will be eligible. So we fit into Australia's trade obligations, and we have the level of security that we know the background of these individuals. Um, for so, fear of for fear of asking you a question that could lead us down a very deep and dark <laughs> rabbit hole here, is this part of the reason why the automatic mutual recognition of licensing has had some issues getting up around security? It's part of the reason. Um, certainly the, the very different approaches. I mean, look, from our position in New South Wales, if you allow all visa holders, you might, you might as well get rid of fingerprinting and criminal intelligence checks because you're saying they don't matter. Um, right. Someone coming in here, on here, over here for a visa from another country, your fingerprints aren't on file. There's no criminal intelligence, which is not to say they don't have those issues. Yeah. I mean, the criminal history, obviously, we manage that through requiring people to provide those overseas criminal histories. In New South Wales, we go further. We make sure that those criminal histories endorsed by the relevant um, embassy or consulate here so that that country is essentially vouching for their citizens. Um, but, but, yeah, that other jurisdictions disagree. Other jurisdictions would probably see what we do as overregulation. We think that those, those restrictions are necessary to provide the kind of safety and security around the industry that we need. Um, so, yeah, those differences... Um, I guess play a large role in why automatic mutual recognition is unlikely to um, take off for a while. Okay. Hopefully ASIO's efforts to uh, to get national consistency might see us moving in that direction in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's all part of a much longer conversation that we won't bother with now, but we, uh, we did a podcast with Neil Fergus uh, earlier about what the uh, the security landscape looks like for the Melbourne 2026 Commonwealth Games and then the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and how we're possibly going to staff those things given the state of the industry at the moment. And I, I listened to that. I listened to all your podcasts. Yeah, right? I was going to say, needless to say, that the, uh, the, the national licensing scheme was definitely back on the agenda, but I won't beat you about the ears with that one yet again. Uh, so sorry, I, I interrupted you midstream. Other uh, changes well, that are good. Uh, it's an understandable interruption. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what else are we doing? So other things we've done. So we went through an exercise with this review of the legislation, which was long overdue, where we look at that every offence that was in the legislation and worked out the comparative severity of those offences and then rigging the penalties um, uh, accordingly. So. That hadn't been done ever, and so we've, what we found is if the penalty amounts for certain offences just didn't align with the severity. So we've gone through that exercise. That'll be fixed up. Um, something that I um, that is very important for SLED more so than industry, but which hopefully will give industry more uh, more uh, confidence in SLED, is for the first time we will now be able to publicise the enforcement action we take. So. Okay. Fines, prosecutions, license revocations. Um, previously, we have not been able to publicise that um, because of privacy restrictions. We now have specific authorisation in the legislation to do that from the 1st of June. Um, so hopefully that will counter the, the the incorrect perception out there that SLED doesn't do anything. Um, yeah, 
we will be able to be more open. So uh, to an extent, I guess we're going to have name and shame provisions. Um, there are obviously um, some parameters that we'll need to work with. So we can't publicise something until all action is um, finalised, including any appeal rights that a person has. Um, so in the case of, say, penalty um, uh, infringement notice that we issue, um, only penalties over a certain amount, so we won't be publicising the, the small ticket stuff, but things like operating without a licence, employing an unlicensed person, unauthorised subcontracting, uh, we can and will publicise once the penalty is either paid or um, any challenge to the penalty is completed uh, in our favour. Um, and similarly with revocation, we'll publish um, uh, revocations, licences that we revoked once the person has exhausted their appeal rights. Right. Okay. Another change, um, there's, there's quite a considerable amount of changes in this legislation, but as I say, um, a lot of it's just tidy up. To it. Well, one which your listeners might um, be happy to hear is that one of the things we saw with individual master licence holders, we thought it was a bit ridiculous that um, effectively these are small business um, owners that they needed a separate class 2B license to authorise them to sell the services of their business, if you like. Um, so we have made it that an individual master license holder is authorised now to sell security services and for that matter, sell security equipment without the need for that separate 2B license. Um, uh, going also to another measure that is designed to help small business is and returning to those penalties and having gone through the exercise of making sure that the penalties for offences are, are, are appropriate, we are going to discount the monetary penalties for small business by 75%. So okay. if you take, for example, employing an unlicensed person, which carries an on-the-spot fine of $11,000, um, that is a big whack for a small business. Um it's potentially just a slap on the wrist for a very large business. Um, so uh, we've, we're going to be discounting the fines for the smaller businesses. So my enforcement officers, um, I guess, will feel more comfortable when uh, circumstances uh, demand it to issue a fine, knowing that they're not going to put business out of business um, just by taking that enforcement action. So That's an interesting change, though, because it could be interpreted by some people as you're taking action that will have less of a dissuading effect on people potentially employing, knowingly employing unlicensed people just to get the numbers up for, let's say I'm John Bigelow security and I've got a contract at the big day out and I need to provide the 20 guards and I've only got 15 people on the books and I think, oh, look, I'll just get five of my mates to do it. They've reduced the fine. It's not that bad compared to what I'm going to make out of the day. I'll roll the dice and if it happens, it happens. Oh. What's the response to that though? So, yeah, fair point. Um, so there's a couple of responses to that. Obviously, in that instance you gave, it's not one offence committed, it's five. Um, yep. So there'll be five lots. But but then we get to, um, uh, in that circumstance, the prosecution would be warranted because it's a deliberate contravention. It's not, right. yeah, it's not an ignorance. It's not an administrative error, which sometimes occurs. That is a deliberate attempt to flout the legislation. So we would move to either prosecution, or it may even be if we if we've seen a culture of non-compliance evidence there, straight to license revocation. 
Um, so we use a graduated enforcement model. So we apply the um, the enforcement outcome that's appropriate to the circumstances as we find them. But um, like I say, just for a small business, that, again, these things happen with administrative oversight. Someone's employed and they're not licensed yet or, or there's been an instance of unauthorised subcontracting, for example, um, that small business could potentially be shut down with an $11,000 fine for the unlicensed um, versus their competitors, a very large business, and, and to a degree, that 11000 fine could be small change. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. If people wanted to know more about the changes and the raft of changes that we've discussed today, are they all publicly available now? Where do they go to find out? Yeah, the Security Industry Amendment Bill 2022 is available on the New South Wales uh, legislation website. Um, uh, If master licensees use LinkedIn, um, uh, please connect with me. I'm doing a series of posts at the moment, so I'm explaining these changes. uh, if not, follow the SLED Facebook page. Uh, we're posting over on, on there as well. Um, the SLED website and our news section, they can find details about these changes. So, yeah, we're trying to get as much communication out as possible. Okay. And do you foresee further down the track there being any provision for a town hall kind of thing where people can jump online and you can talk people through it and they can ask questions or, or any sort of Zoom webinar series? It's not something that uh, we have planned at this stage, but you know what? If if Asia think that might be a great idea, once it's facilitated, perhaps uh, perhaps that would be a good idea. Well, who knows? Maybe Asia needs to uh, have a couple of New South Wales breakfast briefings where you can come along and talk people through the changes and answer questions. Well, as a matter of fact, I will be attending the next Asia um, breakfast <laughs> briefing, and we'll be doing just that. So, That's it. They can. They, whereabouts is that, and when is that? Uh, that's a very good question. That's all right. We'll post the details on the. I'll be there. I the date and place, but I'll be there. They can bow you up over your poached eggs and tell you exactly what they think. <laughs> Absolutely, look forward to it. Look, Cameron, thank you very much for taking the time to talk us through that. It sounds like there's a lot of positive stuff going on in the New South Wales security industry, and obviously, if people have got any questions, they can find you at Sled. What's the best way to communicate if they need to? Uh, yeah, the best way is to. Um, so for a detailed question, if they email sled at police.nsw.gov.au, my customer relations team um, can, can manage those inquiries. Again, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and I do respond to questions and comments there. So if people want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm happy to do it again directly as well. Great. Well, look, once again, thank you very much for your time and we look forward to speaking to you uh, next time we have the occasion. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this episode, obviously there's many more like them in the ASIAL podcast series. I think we're up to about 85 now. So you can find them on the ASIAL website at www.asial.com.au in the news section under podcasts or you can subscribe on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Play, iTunes, Blurberry and all the other good places that you find them and we will talk to you next time. The only tool missing from your belt, Simpro. Total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. 
Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you. So let's get to work.